Good morning. We're glad you're here. Welcome to Cross Point. Uh, we'll be in Psalm 16 this morning if you'd like to turn there. I'll explain that a little bit here in just a minute. But we will be in Psalm 16 and we'll be looking only at the first two verses and we'll probably cover some more next week. Um, if you are a visitor with us today, we, we really count it a privilege. We, we believe that this time when we gather each week is incredibly special. We believe that our Lord is with us. We believe that we hear from him through the word, that we engage him in song, and it is no small thing. And so if you're here as a visitor, we want to welcome you. We want to encourage you to hit this visitor kiosk right here uh, where it says, Welcome to Crosspoint Fellowship, and get some information uh, on how to plug in and to know what's going on around here if the Lord's leading you to do so. Some of you have read ahead this week and gotten ready uh, for the Job sermon. Um, and I've had a few of you say, hey, Scott, why are you wearing a microphone? Uh, we're, I read ahead for Job, and we're ready to dive into that. And um, there's a, there was a letter that, that Ben sent to the body last night that explains it best, why we're, we're not going to be in Job today, and we're going to be in Psalm 16. And so I'd really like to read what Ben wrote to explain that. Some of you have read the email, and some of you have not. It went out fairly late. Um, but I think the best way to kind of explain why we're heading into Psalm 16 this morning instead of um, those final sermons in Job is best explained by Ben through the, through the email that he sent. So I'm going to read this out loud because some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, and some of you would like a little explanation. And so um, this is what Ben wrote to the body last night. Ben wrote, CF Family. I'm struggling with where to begin. Maybe I could just start with a confession. I've been quarrelsome and have lacked gentleness with those I serve with probably since we began this church 15 years ago. I think most folks recognize that God has knocked off some sharp edges in me in those 15 years for which I'm grateful. I think the sermons have softened a bit without compromising on the truth, and I think day-to-day -day interactions with folks in our body are generally softer than they have been years ago. But in daily life, serving with the staff, the elders, and the deacons, I'm still 15 years in, pretty hard to disagree with, hard to reason with, and hard to get through to. I get frustrated if others don't see it my way. And in my words and tone, I can be and often am harsh and cutting. Proverbs 21.9 says it's better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. In some ways, I force the Crosspoint staff and leadership to live in the corner of the housetop. Among the qualifications for an overseer, a pastor, an elder, are that he must not be violent but gentle, and he must not be quarrelsome. So I'm arguably disqualified for this work already, and may have been so for some time now. No one has accused me of that, but I'm coming to grips with that on my own as I process what I've heard from those with whom I serve. Christy and I have to reckon with that hard pill. It was deep conviction that led us to plant Crosspoint, and it's deep conviction that says it's not okay to continue moving in that way as a pastor. We've asked the elders to let us take leave of absence, effective this Sunday, to begin the process of searching God's will for our future. Our three-month sabbatical is scheduled to begin in August, so this leave of absence will be until sabbatical begins. 
I will be seeing a professional counselor beginning this Tuesday and will likely continue throughout my sabbatical. What Christy and I hope to sort out in this season is whether or not I can grow into a biblically qualified overseer or if I'm just not wired for the unique level of gentleness required for the office. During this season, please pray that God would either shape me into what I need to be to serve as a pastor or show us what he wants me to be instead. The former is preferable as I truly love the work. But there are many other ways to serve the Lord other than as a pastor. So know, too, that we're not making any decisions at this point. We're, not, we're also not making these decisions alone as the Crosspoint leadership will be walking with us through this season. Christy and I love y'all and are thankful for a church family that's patient, loving, and walks in the gospel. Even if, and especially if it's hard. We are entering, to, entering into a pretty special time in the life of our church with the Congregational Authority Series coming up this fall. God is continuing to bless us with great growth problems, and we all have so many wonderful ways to serve. It's a really good time to be part of the people of God at Crosspoint Fellowship. We love y'all. Ben. I want to reiterate that no decisions are being made or have been made. Um, and I want to point out two things in particular about what what your pastor wrote. First, I want to point out how humble it is. It's one of the most humble things I've ever read. And because it's so humble, it's humbling. When you see someone carrying that level of conviction over some sin, it should, what I did when I first read that is I said, is there any sin in my life that I need to take that seriously? It's humbling. And I think as a church, we should follow his lead on that and consider, is there any sin that we're taking lightly and is there any sin that we need to take more seriously? It's fitting. The second thing I want to point out about the letter is that it's redemptive and hopeful. The sky's not falling. No decisions have been made. What's happened is there's been a recognition of a blind spot, a complete ownership in, in the most humble way I can imagine, and a path that is utterly redemptive and full of hope. And so I encourage you to keep your eyes on that and pray as he has asked. Pray that God would give wisdom and discernment. Um, I, am, uh, I, th I feel like I should say I've had some questions this morning on was, was this like a plan to roll this out in a certain way and send an email at 9.30 at night and all that. No, this is about as just gut level movement as you can have. The, the conviction fell in this way yesterday. And the email went out as soon as it could. And, um, and we're trying to move in this in a God-honoring way. And I want to encourage you to be, like, at Crosspoint, our full-time pastors have three-month sabbaticals every five years. His sabbatical is going to start in August. So essentially what he's asking is, can I start sabbatical early because of the weight of the conviction that I'm feeling and I want to get, I want to, get to work on this. And so this is when it's good um, to have a, a plurality of leadership. We can move forward as a church. We can continue to do what we were going to do when he was on sabbatical, but we will do so in a redemptive, hope-filled, prayerful spirit. We need to be lifting Ben and Christy up and the family up. We need to be encouraging them and giving them words of love as often as we possibly can. So I think it's fitting for us to pray in that direction, and then we'll spend some, some time in Psalm 16 this morning for our sermon. So let's pray together. Lord, you are great. 
and you are greatly to be praised. Admittedly, this morning we are, we are entering into this time um, in a somber way, in a low way, humbled, but also encouraged. Lord, as always, we, we want to pray for the other churches in the area. An example that Ben has said every Sunday before he preaches, um, we pray for the other churches. We ask that you would um, let their times of worship this morning be sweet. Let their pastors um, be enjoying you. Let their marriages be healthy. And specifically this morning, uh, we pray for Pastor Ben and for Christy. I pray for the things that he asked for in this letter that he sent to us last night. I pray that he would be um, continually aware of your presence. And I pray that you would give them insight and wisdom and discernment on how to move and what the needs are and what that looks like. I pray that you would guide him uh, through um, everything that he needs to be guided through. Lord, I confess there's, there's a bunch of unknowns there's a bunch of um, things that we don't have figured out right now. Um, and that's when I'm thankful that you are a good God who knows our deepest needs before we voice them. As we enter into this time with the sermon, the time in Psalm 16, my prayer is that you would bless us, that you would give us insight, that you would help our minds and our hearts to be clear and that we would be encouraged by how good our God is. Uh, we need you at, in every moment, Lord. We humbly express that now. We love you. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Psalm 16. Let's just read the first two verses, and that's going to be our focus this morning. Psalm 16, verses 1 and 2. It says this. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. I'm going to read that again. That's our whole focus for the morning. Those two verses. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Not to shift the focus too quickly to something that might be lighthearted, but did anyone in here grow up with a dad who was a crier? Does anyone have a... We'll show of hands, any dads that were like kind of maybe overly emotional at times. I, my dad's a crier. My, my dad is one of those guys. He's extremely emotional. I'm emotional. Uh, I, I inherited that from him. He's one of those guys that um, cries at greeting card commercials and tries to act like he's not crying. You know, the, the whole, uh, Dad, are you crying? No, I'm good. You know, the manly sort of, I just talk inward instead of outward when I feel like I'm crying. That, that's what he does. And... There was a time even where he was trying to explain a commercial to me that he saw during Christmas, and he got emotional explaining the commercial. Uh, he's an emotional guy, very, very sappy. He's got one of those hearts that's just full of thankfulness and never really presumptuous at all. Um, we, we got to attend an Eagles concert together recently, and the Eagles uh, let out where... the, the the eagles are on stage. I'm sitting with my dad. I was going to ask my dad to babysit my kids. I was like, I can't do that. Like, you introduced me to the eagles. We got to go together. We'll find someone else to watch the kids. And so, so we, we're in this moment. We're, we're at the eagles concert together. And 
the lights come on, and the eagles hit one of those harmonies that only the eagles can. And I look over, and my dad's like, I'm like, Dad, are you crying? They sang one note. And he's like, it's just the eagles, and I'm here with my boys. Oh, I mean, he is a sappy guy. And I've admittedly inherited some of that sappiness. I'm an emotional person. When I proposed to my wife, I did so with a song, and I cried at my own song that I wrote for proposal. Um, when those commercials come on with the angels, that, with the uh, animals that need our help, and Sarah McLaughlin is singing, in the arms of the angels, um, I change the channel, because I can't get wrapped up into that kind of emotional turmoil at the drop of a hat. When I see a soldier who's been overseas surprising his kids at school, I don't care how many times we've seen it, every time it gets me. When they hit the golden buzzer on America's Got Talent, <laughs> I get emotional. My wife is a sports crier. You know, sports criers. So when the girls win like a random soccer game on a Thursday night and they did really well, my wife kind of does the inward talk a little bit. She gets a little bit emotional. Uh, she'll, she'll cry at sports before most other things. When I was little, I cried when I saw Pinocchio. Because when he washed up on the shore, I thought he was dead. And my mom literally had to remove him from the theater because I was so inconsolable. Pinocchio's dead. I couldn't handle it. And I have watched The Notebook. But only once. Because it doesn't make any sense to me to submit to such sadness and beauty more than one time in your life. Emotions. Um, generally, a song is good when it connects to your emotions, right? We, we say a song is a good song when it connects to us and some experience that we've had. Some, we, can, uh, we can relate to what's being said. We can relate to what's being sung. Maybe it's a, a breakup song and it, and it reminds you of something. Maybe it's uh, a song about love. Maybe it's a song about family. And good songs are good in as much as they connect to our emotions. They kind of invite us in. The kind of songs that are played during the father-daughter part of a dance at a wedding reception, like butterfly kisses and things like that. The Psalms aim to do the same thing. The Psalms, as we're considering them this morning, Psalm 16 in particular, aim to do the same thing, to invite you into the song and to connect with you on this emotional level. Now, for some of us, that's easier than others. So I want to explain a little background on just psalms in general before we jump into this psalm. One scholar states it like this. The psalms are life-shaping material that are written on our hearts. They express our emotions. The psalms really express the full range of human emotions. We resonate with them because they're personal and they're painful and they're poetic. We find people that are sharing in our experiences. Not just prophets that are preaching to us, but poets that are weeping with us. Our emotional life through the Psalms is vented out, but in a Godward direction. There's this pattern in the Psalms that's a pattern of desperation and dependence and deliverance. It's a pattern throughout the Psalms. Desperation, dependence, and deliverance. And I think that we recognize that and we identify with that emotionally because our lives are often a pattern of moments of desperation and then dependence upon God and then deliverance in his way. Desperation, dependence, and deliverance. It's a cycle that helps us to learn how to depend on God that's represented in the Psalms. They turn feelings into thoughts, and thoughts are sometimes easier to work through than emotions. That's why we identify with the Psalms. The Psalms, in fact, transform our emotions. They grab someone's feelings 
and thoughts about their circumstances, and then they transform them by taking those thoughts and those feelings and funneling them toward God. So that's what we're doing this morning as we go to Psalm 16. I encourage you this morning to let your guard down. It's a weird thing to ask, right? Especially on an emotional morning. I'm encouraging you to let your guard down. For some of you, that's easy. You're, you're the golden buzzer crier people. And you're like, okay, I'm, my guard's down. Let's do this. And for others, you're like, uh-uh. I don't know. That's what the psalm is inviting us to do this morning. It's a fitting response. So I encourage you. Consider, try, see if you identify with the psalmist's emotions. In this case, the psalmist is David. David cries out in verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. How do we identify with that? I think we begin by saying, consider what condition a person must be in to cry out for such a thing. Consider the condition a person must be in to cry out for preservation. My son, he asks me for help all the time. Dad, I need a hand with this. Dad, I can't figure this out. Dad, this is too heavy. Can you help me lift it? But I've never heard my son say, Father, preserve me. Consider the desperation of the moment in this song. To ask for preservation is to ask for continuance of life. God, if you don't preserve me, I don't make it through this. This thing that I'm facing, this trial that I'm facing, triumphs over me unless you intervene and you keep it from happening. So God, as the psalmist is saying, I take refuge in you. As this thing is pursuing me, my shelter that I'm seeking is you. And further than that, the psalmist says, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. David was no stranger to trial Multiple times he was surrounded by enemies who sought his life. Multiple times he found himself in situations where those close to him betrayed him. Even his own son sought to kill him at one point. Think about the desperation of a situation where your flesh and blood, your offspring, your son, is gathering men with weapons to pursue and destroy you. He was no stranger to desperation, to trial. He wasn't a perfect, blameless man. He struggled with sin. He struggled with doubt. But what we find in the Psalms is that he generally struggled Godward. The struggle that we see, that this desperation that we're hearing, this language, God, preserve me. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you is a struggle that is a struggle Godward. He's showing us it's okay to struggle as long as you do it the right way. So to better understand that, I think it's fitting that we look a little more closely at the four things that David says in this psalm. Preserve me. I take refuge in you. You are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. Four important details for us to consider this morning as we're invited into these emotions and we're invited into this this chorus. We've established that the cry for preservation is one where David is aware of the gravity of his situation. Rather than treating desperation as some rare occurrence, as though it were a feeling that he shouldn't be experiencing, I shouldn't feel so desperate, 
Rather than doing that, he takes the feeling of desperation and he moves toward God. David moves toward God, not away from God. In the pursuit from whatever trouble or danger he's in, we don't know for sure. We know his situation, we know his story, but we don't know exactly what he's writing about. Whatever the trouble is, whatever the danger, he seeks shelter with the Almighty. David could have tried to take refuge in many other things. Perhaps his ability to reason with others. He could have said, you know what? This is a bad situation, but I got it. Just give me five minutes and I will figure this out. Maybe he, took, he could have taken refuge in his ability to reason with others. Maybe perhaps he could have taken refuge in a previous experience like triumphing over Goliath. Perhaps he could have taken refuge in his leadership abilities. But in this desperate moment, we see a guy who goes to the Lord, and he doesn't just seek refuge. He cries out as he's doing so, God, you are my Lord, my comfort is not my Lord. Knowing all of the answers to all of the questions is not my Lord. My happiness is not my Lord. The gods of the peoples are not my Lord. My position as king is not my Lord. My approval from others is not my Lord. Freedom from pain, freedom from affliction, freedom from the things that, that plague me are not my Lord. No, in the pain, in the affliction, in the confusion, in the desperation that is this psalm, in this moment where he's saying, I'm unsure how to continue, you are my Lord. I completely entrust myself to you. I don't have an answer, but I know that you do. So David's all in. All of his cards, all of his chips have been pushed to the center of the table. His eyes are singularly focused on the Lord in the middle of his trial. Sometimes we kind of try to diversify our portfolio in trials, like minimize our risk and hedge our bets. So in the, in the way to get out of this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have this in place and this in place and this in place and this in place and this in place. So if this fails, these two will make up for it. If these two fail, then we'll, we'll, we'll be okay here. And we kind of try to diversify. We're going to go after a bunch of things to, to get through our trials. He is singularly focused on the Lord. He is not seeking preservation in many different ways, but in one way, from the hand of his God. And then he makes a remarkable statement in his plea for preservation, he says, I have no good apart from you. I have no good apart from you. Consider with me this massive statement. Consider what faith it must have taken in the midst of trial to say, in this moment where I am utterly desperate, I do not have any answers Preserve me, God, in this moment. He says, I have no good, zero good, apart from you. All presumption is gone. Do you approach the Lord with presumption? David is sitting here. He, all presumption is, God, is gone. He cannot presume upon God in any way because of some goodness that he might have within himself. Let me say that again. David, in this moment, cannot presume upon God in any way to help him because he's reckoning with the reality that he has nothing 
good within himself to offer to God in exchange for something that God might do for him. He literally has nothing to bring to the table. When he looks at his situation and he looks to God for refuge and preservation, he comes begging. But he has nothing to offer. Y'all hear that? You see this worshiper? He comes begging. He comes desperate. And he comes with nothing to offer. There is no trade. There is no deal. There is no exchange. I have no good apart from you. And I would, I would offer to you that this is worship. This is wholehearted worship. This is humble worship. It makes me wonder if we can actually worship God without some sense of desperation. David can't even say, okay, God, if you preserve me in this situation, if you preserve me, then everything I have is yours. I'll be a king for your glory. I'll be a better husband and father. I'll work harder for your people. I'll never give way to fleshly temptation again. Let me live and then I'll live for you. No, all of that is gone because if he has no good apart from God, then he literally has nothing to offer God that could be good that God didn't already give to him. He's approaching God in the most rational way possible. God, any good that I have comes from you. I don't have anything more to offer. I just, I need you, God. I need you right now. I need you to preserve me. This thing overwhelms me if you don't. And I have nothing to offer. All of it is gone. If he has no good apart from God, then he literally has nothing to offer God that could be good. And rather than just, and rather than saying, man, dang, I'm such a mess. I got nothing good to offer. He swallows his pride, he reckons with the gravity of the situation, and he cries out to God, preserve me, you're all I've got. Apart from you, I have no good in my life. I have no good in my marriage. I have no good as a parent. My children have no good within themselves. My work is no good apart from you. There is no good apart from you, so Lord, please don't let this thing overtake me. That's the psalm. That's the two verses. That's, that's what we're seeing this morning as we read. And when David, you got to consider, this is something that happened before he wrote the psalm. So when David went through this experience, and then later on sat down with pen and paper to write a song about it, which is what the psalms are, he sat down later, said, I'm going to write a song about what happened. He invites us into the psalm to reckon with feelings, to turn those feelings into thoughts, to ask what he asks, and to confess what he confesses. So I think this naturally brings us into some application for the morning. We've got four simple points of application in these two straightforward verses, and they come in the form of questions. Application number one, have you ever had the sense of desperation that we see from the psalmist? If you're taking notes, write the question down, because you're going to need to think over these questions. Have you ever had the sense of desperation that we see from the psalmist? Have you ever really reckoned with the gravity of your situation apart from God? There's really two people, two types of people that I think need to be addressed in this application. Some of us will do all that we can to escape any sense of desperation. Some of you sitting here right now 
will do everything in your power, which is not very much power, to escape any sense of desperation. You want to control everything that you can possibly control. You do not want to admit any weakness. You do not want to admit any shortcomings. You don't like to let people help you. You don't like to make your needs known. And some of us sitting here need to reckon with this reality that we run from desperation when desperation may be something that God's using to make you more holy. Some of us will run from it. Any sense of some need that we might have that we can't ourselves figure out. The gospel is good news, but only for those who know why it's good. Jesus Christ coming to earth, living a perfect life, and dying on the cross, and then conquering death is only good news if we know that it is our death and our cross that Jesus conquered. And do you know why Jesus did that? Because like the psalmist, we have nothing good to offer. Jesus came and lived the life he lived and died on the cross and conquered death because we can't do that. We, like the psalmist, have no good apart from God. Nothing good to offer. Romans tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. What that means is that if you're a sinner, you need to reckon with the darkness and the desperation of your situation. If you are a sinner who has never followed Christ, I hope you're doing that right now. This morning, the first trial that we need to consider in the desperate circumstance of our, is the desperate circumstance of our sin. If you're here this morning and you have never confessed your sin or put your faith in Christ, our hope is that you do. Our hope is that you join the song of the psalmist and cry out to God to preserve you, begging you or begging for Jesus to give you shelter from sin and from death. That's no small appeal. If you're wondering, is is Christ worthy of my trust? The psalmist reveals that he is. If you're wondering, do I really, should I be desperate? You should be. The reality of your sin should, should push you and drive you to seeking shelter from sin and death. The wages of sin and death means because you sin, the payment you deserve is death. And you have nothing good to bring to the table. So your Lord offers you salvation in Christ alone. And my encouragement this morning is to take it if you have not done that. Humble yourselves the way the psalmist has humbled himself. But I think it's also important for us to remember that David was a God follower, right? David wasn't an unbeliever per se. David was a God follower. He was a man after God's own heart, but he still found himself in a really grave situation, a very real trial. So this is the second type of person that's being addressed on have you ever really reckoned with the desperation of your situation? He finds himself in a grave situation, a real trial. This could have come from the suffering that accompanies faithfulness. It could have come from the suffering that accompanies sinfulness. It could have come from a combination of the two. So the question for you this morning is, are you crying out to God to preserve you? Are you actively doing that? Or are you just assuming that you don't need much from him anymore now that you have salvation? Have you cried out to God for such preservation since that first moment that you cried out to God for salvation in the moment you reckoned with your sin? That's a desperate moment for everybody who has moved from darkness to light. But have you ever had an honest, desperate moment since then? 
That's the pattern of life that we live, this pattern of desperation and dependence and deliverance, desperation, dependence and deliverance. So are you reckoning with those desperate moments? All of us have faced and will face trials at various times. These trials come in many different shapes and sizes. And as sinners in a fallen and broken world, we very often turn to other things to help get us through our trials. We might depend upon our ability to control other people. Their friendship or a relationship or even a spouse before we ever speak a word to God about the desperate situation that we're in. We might depend on worldly distractions. Just stay busy so you don't have to deal with the desperate situation that you're in. Just keep working. We might just depend on good old-fashioned perseverance. I'll outlast this trial. I've got some staying power. I'll be standing when everyone else isn't. And we depend on ourselves. What I think we need to hear this morning is that it is good to have a sense of desperation even when you have placed your faith in Christ. In running from the desperation, you might be running from God. And God, as we have learned through the book of Job, in his love and in his wisdom, allows circumstances and the lives of his children to give them a sense of desperation. Times where things are taken out of your hands. Times where things are out of your control. Times where there's something that is broken and you can't fix it. Times when you genuinely have to entrust yourself or entrust others to the Lord with nothing good to offer as an incentive for help from the Lord. Nothing good to offer still. You just come to him with your brokenness, with your need as a worshiper. I want to be careful. I don't want to think that you can somehow make this shift and and lead to going to this reckoning with desperation and then saying, okay, God, let's do this. If I get your help, I'm going to turn, I'm going to do, no, stop with what you're going to do because you have nothing good to offer. He has only good to offer. So take it, receive it with a sense of of your desperation. Don't run from the desperation. The second application point for this morning kind of flows from that one. What or who do you need to entrust to the Lord? What or who do you need to take from your hands in which there's nothing good to offer and place in the Lord's hands? Everyone in here has some relationship or some circumstance that if we're honest, we just can't fix. Or at the very least, we can't provide everything that is needed for a solution. Do you see the mighty hand of the Lord the way that the psalmist does? Can you entrust your marriage to God and stop trying to fix it apart from God? Can you entrust your situation or your circumstance or um, your undesirable um, realities in your life to God? Can you entrust your children to God? Can you entrust loved ones or friends with all of their heartache and trials to God, can you direct them Godward without trying to play God by solving all of their problems for them? It's a humbling thing to entrust your children to the Lord or anyone else that you love for that matter. 
What or who do you need to entrust to the Lord? Because rest assured, what we are seeing in this psalm, what you see throughout the psalms, what we're seeing in every circumstance that we've ever been in, if we're really honest, is that our God is only good. He only gives us what's good for us, even when we don't understand it. He loves you with a love that cannot be capitalized on or improved upon. He is extremely good. His hand is extremely mighty. And just consider what it is that you need to put into those mighty and strong and powerful and loving hands of a good father who gives good things to his children. So the third application question is this. The psalmist cries out, you are my Lord. So the question we need to ask is, has anything taken God's place as Lord of your life? This may not mean that God has no place in your life, but it may mean that there are places in your life where you don't have God. This doesn't mean that you have forsaken the Lord altogether and and that he he has no no play in in your circumstances, but it may mean that there are certain parts of your circumstances that you need to reckon with this morning that he's not Lord. He's not seated as Lord of your life. If David's appeal here is humble and low, revealing that God was rightly seated on his throne in David's life. So the question is, is there anything or anyone that you are currently making sacrifices to that isn't God? And when I say sacrifices, I mean, are you giving time, thoughts, money, worry, efforts to something or to someone in hopes that they, not God, will actually be the one to preserve you through your trial? Are you looking to work to preserve you through your trial? Are you looking to money to preserve you through your trial? Are you looking to a friendship or relationship or even your spouse to preserve you through a trial? Those things are all good things, but they're utterly secondary if those those things are not in the Lord's hands. The final application point is this. Can you genuinely say, I have no good apart from you? And if, if you can, have you? Have you been honest with the Lord? Have you worshipped him in that way to be able to say to the Lord, God, I, I, I have no good apart from you? Is that your level of dependence upon your God to get you through each day? Or do you approach the day saying, I'm 75% good. God, here's the 25% I need your help with. God, I got this covered. I got this covered. I got this covered. Thanks for the offer. Don't need the help. But over here, this is a bit of a mess. I'm going to need some help. A lot of us think in those terms, whether we give words to that or not, and here what we see is, I have no good apart from you. Do you mistakenly think that the journey of faith is some sort of exchange where you give God some good things in exchange for some good things that he gives you? Are you presuming upon God in any way? As we move to take the supper this morning, I want to share Philippians 4, and I want to encourage you to turn there. So we've been, Psalm 16, 1 and 2, that's been our main focus, and I just want to encourage you to turn over to Philippians 4. There's a sweet reality in the supper for us this morning, and that the flip side of all of this is that in Christ, we have only goodness and preservation. We have goodness and preservation from the hand of our God. Philippians 4 says it this way, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. 
Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That's what the Psalms do. They take these emotions and they funnel them in in the form of reasonableness toward God. And so God says, rejoice always. Rejoice always. Don't ever stop rejoicing because something is so bad. Don't ever stop rejoicing because you're reckoning with the desperation of your situation. Continue to rejoice always. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Speak out about what's going on, for the Lord is at hand. And it says this, do not be anxious about anything. That psalm could have been the anxious psalm if he didn't go Godward with it, right? It could have been, God, I'm not going to be preserved, God. God, this isn't going well, God. God, I can't control this, God. Oh, but it didn't stay there. He, He leads with preserve me. You're my God. I have no good apart from you. I seek refuge in you. So don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, prayer, asking for help, with thanksgiving, because in every circumstance, if you can rejoice, that means that in every circumstance, you have something to give thanks for. In that, let your requests be made known to God. The same access that the psalmist has to God, you have in Christ. In Christ, you have access to God where you can go to Him and let your request be made known. Just consider that for a moment. The creator of all things created, well aware, far more aware of all the problems and desperation that we face, far more than we are. He says, you know what? I'm right here. I'm a good God. I love you. Let your request be made known. Yes, I can read your mind. Yes, I read your journal. Yes, I know what you wrote down for prayer this morning but I desire a relationship with you because I love you. So come here, come here, come sit with me, come seek refuge in me, come look look for shelter with me because I want to shelter you. I want to give you refuge. And you know what I want you to do while we're here and you're here and I'm here? God's saying, I want you to tell me what you need. Please do that. Please do that. Your God invites you to that kind of a close, loving, compassionate, provision, relationship with him. Let your requests be made known with thanksgiving. And look what he does in verse 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Those moments of desperation where we're saying, God, I'm done. This is, the, this is out of my hands. I don't know what to do here. I don't have control over this. I don't have a solution to the problem. He says, when you come to me and you, you seek that refuge in me and you sit with me and you let me love you like a heavenly father does, in that moment, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to tell you everything. I'm not going to give you full understanding. I'm going to give you peace that exceeds understanding. I'm going I'm to I'm visit your heart and I'm going to visit your mind with peace. That's what our God does. I've expressed before that some of us control freaks, we say, give me understanding and then I'll have peace. If I, if I know what's going on and I know what the solution is to the problem and I know what tomorrow holds and I know what the six-month plan is and I know what the budget is and I know what the schedule is and I can control all those things, then I will have peace, God. And God says, no, you won't. You will not. You will have peace when I give you peace. And when I give you peace, it's a peace that what? Exceeds understanding. It exceeds knowing all the details. 
It exceeds having all the answers because you're in a desperate situation and you can't handle that. God can. So when we move into the supper, this is what we celebrate. It's what we seek and what we celebrate when we take the supper. The goodness and the preservation from the Lord. So I want to encourage you as we distribute the elements here in just a second. I want you to take some time to seek refuge in the Lord. To let your requests be made known to your good God who offers goodness and preservation in the moment of your desperation. Examine yourselves. Confess your sin. And humble yourselves before your good God who invites you into refuge and shelter in himself.